You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Looking for something to do after Halloween is over? Are you into the strange, bizarre, and unusual? On November 3rd, 4th, and 5th, the Strange Realities Conference is coming back to Nashville, Tennessee and streaming online. Come join us for three days exploring mysteries, supernatural, the occult, weird history, and more. Featuring lectures, presentations, and workshops by Tim Banal, Zach Hunt, Melvin Vance, Bryn Collier, Tobias Whalen, Brent Raines, Joshua Cutchin, Kiki Dombrowski, Recluse, Nathan Isaac, Christopher Ernst, Aaron Gullius, David Metcalf, Timothy Renner, Mallory Samwitzki, Soraya Azkap, and special guest Steve Berg as your Master of Ceremonies. Make sure to join us for the fun and informative weekend online and at SIR Nashville November 3rd and 4th and online only November 5th. Tickets are available at strangerealitiesconference.com. Welcome, guys. Welcome back to Conspiranormal. We are uh, counting down to the Strange Realities Conference 2023. And pretty soon we will be doing all the promo shows that we will be streaming live. But tonight we're going to be talking about a very interesting subject, and that is the subject of Lemuria. We're going to explore it thoroughly tonight, and we have with us Justin McHenry, who has a book coming out pretty soon uh, called Lemuria, A True Story of a Fake Place, and I understand this is about to be uh, published by Feral House here, coming up pretty soon. Yeah, hopefully hopefully the fall, maybe a little later, uh, there have been some production issues, but... But um, yeah, it'll be coming out soon. A couple months, I would say. Let's just put it at a couple months. And hey, fellas, uh, thank you so much for having me, too. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, thanks for coming for, on. Thanks for joining us. Yeah. Um, you emailed me um, about coming on the show, and I was really intrigued by the topic. And um, you were gracious enough to uh, allow us to read the book as well, even though it's not published. And um, it is a great book about Lemuria and just Absolutely. about the history of the concept of Lemuria and what Lemuria is. And I do notice that you know, what nobody can see this on the 
on the audio, but uh, I do notice there's a lemur right behind you, and we're, we'll be talking about lemurs tonight a little bit, which yeah. I don't know if I ever thought on Conspiranormal I would talk about lemurs, but here we are. So key, so, man. Uh, I will ask you, Justin, to get started. You know What I kind of ask everybody whenever they write a book, like what interested you in this particular topic of Lemuria? What was it about this that said, hey, I want to uh, explore this and write a book about it? Well, I've always been like a love mysteries and love like the unknown things like X-Files was part of my favorite TV show of all time, unsolved mysteries, the, the, that kind of stuff. And so um, just just being in that realm, in this realm that we, we're all inhabiting here, um, I've kind of just you just run a by bits and pieces of Lemuria, like hear a little bit from the Blavatsky, hear a little bit from maybe the Shaver Mysteries. Um, and so it's just just hearing those bits and pieces over time. I'm like thinking, what what, what has been written on Lemuria? Like what has what's what's there there? And so there hasn't been much written about it, actually, like taking a overview look at the whole history of Lemuria. So I thought it was a good opportunity to kind of tackle a project like that. And you know, um, you really dig into some kind of mysterious topics that I, that I love to. Yeah. And this is really yeah. a, a history of the, the idea of Lemuria, a true story of a fake place is the subtitle. It, it's something that everyone who's into any of these topics encounters over and over again, but it's kind of mysterious still, and ha- it has this kind of amorphous nature to it. You find it in, in all kinds of different forms. Yeah. And it goes all over the place too. That's, that's was like, once you, I went down that rabbit hole, I wasn't expecting to go, you know, to Madagascar to, um, you know, the Indian ocean, Pacific ocean to inside Mount Shasta to inside the, you know, hollow earth, to you know, Mars and the moon and, you know, intergalactic space brothers and, and, you know, gelatinous sacks and cyclops and and you know it's it's you're you're running the entire gamut of like almost cryptozoology with all of the sightings at mount shasta and it's just it it went all over the place and it was a a fun just to to dive into all of those different kind of topics and you meet rosicrucians and theosophists and and everybody in between it's it's fun yeah for sure um, it's a it's a it's a definite saga about how this idea like has rooted itself into now really like the new age movement is where you kind of end the book yeah and so i guess the best place to start obviously is the beginning so let's start with where did the concept of a lost continent of lemuria come from well like the one the, the craziest things that I like I, I ran across to was like just how central Lemuria was to like 19th, like really major 19th century scientific discoveries that were going on. And so that's where it got its first start was um, back in 1864, there was this British ornithologist a guy named Philip Lutley Schlater, who was doing a review of um, all the mammals that are on Madagascar. Um, and he, he ended it by reviewing lemurs. And so lemurs are only native to Madagascar. You can't, you won't find uh, a lemur anywhere else on the world. And so, but there are lemur like, you know, primates on South and South America and in India and other places in Asia. And so 
in his paper in 1864 called the mammals of madagascar slater um proposed this land bridge that connected south america to africa to madagascar and up to india and so at the very end of it that the very like last sentence of his paper he said i propose to call it lemoria and the name just kind of stuck i think he was just really good at naming and it was a really catchy name and it kind of just stuck in the the, the imagination and it's kind of just stayed there too mm-hmm. through all these different permutations of it yeah yeah i think that's that was it too there was a there you know <clears throat> at the time there was like that was the explanation du jour um for you know, geologist and um, zoologist to help explain these kind of animal migrations was to just create a land bridge connecting two places. Um, and but all those had like scientific names to them, like um, you know the African Madagascar Bridge or something like that. But you know, because it was called Lemoria, it kind of kind of stuck in the imagination. Also, it was in a good spot too. Because the, especially the Indian Ocean, and it would become a good spot for um, later on when, like, um, the theory of evolution like comes in and kind of adopts Lemuria as the place where you know the cradle of humanity was located. Yeah, you find in the the narrative of Lemuria this uh, back and forth between like the scientific development and speculation. And then all these more esoteric or spiritual uh, movements, like they they really use the science of the time to give this air of legitimacy, I guess. And you see that in the development of theosophy and stuff that you explore. Yeah, and definitely. And I think it's also that it was these were just theories, too, and they weren't like set in stone. There was no scientific basis to them, really. They was just like. You know, there's a, a lemur here and something that looks like a lemur there. There must be a bridge connecting them. So um, because it was so nebulous and um, basically unscientific, it allowed that that kind of mystical element to weasel its way in and and turn it into to what it did. What are the first glimpses of that transformation from these scientific theories into this this more mystical narrative? Where does that really start? It starts with Blavatsky, like um, when she gets a hold of it and her secret doctrine um, and starts talking about Lemuria as the home base of the third root race of her, you know, her theory of basically of evolution, her own kind of spiritual evolutionary theory that she goes into. And what's interesting about that is she really like um, co-ops this German um, Darwinist guy named guy by the name of Ernst Heichel. He wrote this really influential book called the history of creation, um, which came out in 1868. And I think the first English edition came out in 1876. Um, but it was just hugely popular science, like popular scientific work, um, that would be the first, like he, he was a really good artist. Heichel was a really good artist and he drew this, amazing map showing Lemuria right there, smack dab in, um, in the Indian ocean. And it was where he placed the kind of like the missing link of, um, evolutionary theory. So, um, the history of creation really gets into how, you know, humanity involved, how man involved. And so for him, Lemuria was the perfect place, uh, a paradise that could house this, you know, 
evolutionary period for humanity where, you know, proto-humans turned into humans and then they, you know, migrated off into, you know, Africa and into Asia and Europe and, and all points. Um, and so it was really through that that Blavatsky got her ideas and then was just like playing off of that. It was, she was doing some jazz there, man. She was really playing off of his ideas and, and, um, and really taking him to task throughout her, like the second volume of the secret doctrine. Well, I would say that the most interesting thing about Blavatsky though, and Lemuria was like, she footnotes her book all throughout. So there's like extensive footnotes throughout um, the secret doctrine. And in it, every one she would, she says repeatedly, she's only using the name Lemuria because that's what, you know, Schlater used. And that's what Alfred Russell Wallace used. And that's what Ernst Teichel was using. So she was just using the terminology that other scientists were using. So it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, Lemuria. It could really be anything else. Before we talk about these mystical concepts that she comes up with, mm -hmm. Blavatsky, because it seems like this is really rooted in Blavatsky and what she comes up with theosophy yeah um how does this concept this scientific concept of lemuria how does it fall by the wayside eventually well okay so um it's a funny thing because heichel would like remove all traces of lemuria from his history of creation book after the secret doctrine comes out so he would kind of erase lemuria from his map just because he didn't want that um connection with blavatsky um, but it would, it really, you don't lose the scientific aspect until like the early night, the early 1900s when, um, you have somebody, uh, a guy by the name of Alfred Wegener who created the idea of continental drift theory. And so he looked at a, you know, a map of the, the, the world, the earth. And saw that all the continents kind of sort of, you know, fit together into one big supercontinent. And so he theorized that the continents had drifted at one point and they, they kind of moved about. And so um, a part of that movement was uh, Madagascar and India separating from Africa and kind of a slow-mo collision up to into Asia. And that's what kind of that's what created the Himalayas and and everything else. And part of that collision is you know, Madagascar peeling off and then kind of floating back down to where it was lo is located now. Um, and he called that movement the Lemurian compression because he, he was, you know, moving whole continents around, whole freaking continents around just to disprove Lemuria ever existed. So, um, and, and his ideas were kind of... Um, um, not taken seriously for a number of years, not until the like 1960s when plate tectonics started becoming uh, were, were discovered, basically. And so with uh, that combination of plate tectonics and Wegener's idea of a continental drift, that's kind of our modern ideas of what the kind of shape of the, the earth or looked like back in the you know prehistory days. Because before that, the story of Lemuria really is is coming from ideas of continents sinking and rising. And yeah. so there was thought that there could be an entire lost continent that simply just sunk. Yeah, yeah. So it was basically they thought that um, the ocean just rise and fell. And that's what like that was the like land masses were, were a constant. There was no movement of land masses. 
Um, and so um, when like the, the sea would rise and fall and that's what, you know, basically took Atlantis out and that's what uh, would take other, these land bridges. That's what, what happened to them too. So we should talk a little bit about Donnelly and how <laughs> that's influential, influential yeah. on yeah. these ideas there's really about, no, about there's Lemuria. No Lemuria without Atlantis. Yeah, exactly. Right, right. And so, and that's what um, Blavatsky really tied the two together in the secret doctrine because Lemuria led to the fourth root race, which was the Atlanteans. And you don't get um, the popularity of Atlanteans in the secret doctrine without Donnelly's, you know, work being published before hers. And um, so, yeah, Ignatius Donnelly, he was a, um, a representative, House of Representatives, um, through the Civil War for um, Minnesota. And he afterwards, he kind of just like a kind of failed politician um, after the war. Um, and so he was a failed farmer as well. And so he was, but he was into science. And so he pulled together this, this work called Atlantis, uh, the Antediluvian World or the Antediluvian Kingdom. I forget which but it was like the first um, real study into Atlantis that had ever been published before. Um, and so it, it looked at all different aspects about the whole Atlantis, Atlantean, um, you know, myth and how he thought the Azores were the, the real, you know, um, location of Atlantis. And so it was real, like using the science of the, the day, like, you know, looking at, um, taking reports from discovery missions, taking those reports back and, and using that, he, he theorized that, uh, you know, Atlantis was real and, and using also a lot of diffusionist ideas to, to come up with this, you know, idea that, you know, there was an Atlantis and it was out where the Azores are now. And, and it became a huge hit. It was like, a, you know, a bestseller of the oh, day. Yeah. It, oh, yeah. and, mm -hmm. and it was still publishing, you know, 60, 70 years after the fact. And, and so it, it's like this huge, huge hit that um, really brought Atlantis back to the public consciousness like it hasn't had since probably, you know, Plato's time, really. Oh, yeah. I mean, pretty much our modern myth of Atlantis comes from Donnelly. Yeah, every every like basically everything. And he even set the standard for what we honestly have today with, you know, Graham Hancock and right eric von yeah Don you talk and, about his whole his movies. whole style of like employing all these different fields geology biology uh comparative mythology and like this historical speculation it's the it's the template for like these earth mysteries bros of yeah exactly yep yep it's all there too and it's um yep and they all should you know bow at his feet for for what he did and like and setting the like the template for them you talked about the diffusionist idea and that's really where Lemuria is becoming popularized when this, this idea is really popular and widespread and people are looking for this, you know, common cradle of, of mankind and civilization and the same things happening and uh, spirituality uh, with, with people looking for this like perennial philosophy and all these kind of things. So that's, that's really the milieu that, Lemuria is existing in people are looking at it as a, a homeland of civilization and, and knowledge for all of humanity yeah exactly so it was a um so for yeah, Heichel it was the the cradle of humanity it's where we 
yeah, became, became humans and then migrated off of, um, and then Blavatsky would take that idea and turn it into the like, cradle of, you know, spirituality for, for humans. The idea of the root races that oh, Blavatsky God. proposes, <laughs> because this, this, you mentioned this with, like, I think the fourth one was the Atlanteans yeah. and this whole idea of basically that there's a de-evolution of consciousness mm -hmm. and that, uh, this is where really the, the, this, this kind of mythology of Lemuria begins to like take shape and how Lemuria is really like Atlantis is also but I feel like Lemuria is really embraced by what is now what we would call the, the, the new age. Like it's really more embraced by that. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's just because of the, the spiritual nature. And then also it's, you know, hasn't, it doesn't have that like solid foundation in you know, Plato's discourses too. like it, you, it's kind of left itself to, to be malleable and to, to turn it into whatever you want it to be. And so, and like really Blavatsky started that whole, whole trend because um, yeah, her root races is her basically evolutionary theory on, you know, human consciousness and human spirituality and, and humanity itself. Um, starting with pure spirit, spirit beings being the, the, you know, the first root race and then slightly less pure spirit beings. Beings, and then in the third root race is where you know the those spirits take um, physical form, start to take physical form, and throughout the the third root race, they become more physical, and actually towards the end become more human too, because it's a whole huge process in that third race mm -hmm. on the Moria where, you know, they start off as giants, then they become Cyclops with telepathic powers, and then they start evolving, you know, two eyes. And so it's, it, it's a whole, whole scene. And then, and then it goes to the Atlanteans and then Atlanteans leads to our current root race, which we are living in right now. And then um, I believe the sixth root, Root race will rise up shortly um, somewhere in America, um, and then followed by the seventh root race, which is you know pure enlightenment, I guess. And of course, we encounter a lot of racism. <laughs> exactly. Yes. So, yes. Yeah. I've heard some theosophists try to kind of rehabilitate this stuff, but uh, she was definitely a product of her time. And uh, yeah, yeah, and so yeah, she was. Um, mostly um native people like indigenous people she was really down upon them and how they were the closest to lemurians like the the late um late period lemurians because they haven't you know evolved as much as as say you know aryans have so and you know what's that's like she shares that with Heichel. Heichel had you know established that in his history of creation, and so that's where you know basically he created a whole tree of racism, like scientific racism, um, basically putting himself at the top, like these Indo-Germanic people at the very tippy tippy top, and the people um, at the bottom were the closest to the Lemurians, and the people at the bottom, of course, are people of color. So. Yeah, the idea that the sixth root race is going to rise in America. Uh, yeah, yeah. Just as an aside, some of the other theos these groups, like especially like 
we're going to talk about this, but the IM movement, did they as- ascribe to some of this that this is what it was going to happen? Yeah, I, I, I assume so. Um, yeah. There were some like um, offshoots of theosophy that took like the Point Luma, um, their theosophy group was in San Diego. There was um, like the, I think the Rosicrucians, like the Amorc um, people. I think that was a, honestly a, a big influence for them and why they set up shop in, in California too. So, so Blavatsky dies and there's this kind of war between these various splinter groups. Yeah. And you mentioned um, Annie Besant as one of the people that, that takes over one of these groups. And she has her own ideas about Lemuria. Yeah. And yeah. And so that, that I was going to say, that's a whole fascinating chapter too. Um, that would be interesting again, like the, the power struggle within theosophy after Blavatsky's death. Um, but yeah, so Annie Besant was a, you know, fascinating woman um before she even went into you know the theosophy she was like a very kind of progressive 19th century um almost feminist like like a proto-feminist and and like advocating for you know um women's health rights and reproduction rights and and things like that in in england um and, and getting in trouble for it too um and so she was um actually uh, assigned uh, like a, a, to review the secret doctrine. And so she read the secret doctrine and that's how she kind of got folded into the, the Blavatsky world. And so after her death, she teams up with a guy named Charles Leadbeater um, and they produce a series of, of books together. Um, and Leadbeater is really a, a creep. Like he's like one of the worst people you can, he's a serial child molester basically. Um, yeah. Which she defended. Yeah, no, yeah, she yeah. she kept bringing him back and bringing him right. back and bringing right. him back. Um and um yeah, and it's it's funny because she has like she has good qualities. She was a whole she was when she moved shop uh, the, the theosophy back to India, um like she was very um um focused on like Indian home rule and, and like the Indian freedom movement and, and things like that as well. And so, um, but it's with this, this relationship with Leadbeater that um, kind of produces like a whole different side of Lemuria. And they wrote a book called man, whence, how, and whither um, published in 1913. And it, it goes into some uh, like strange, strange places. Um and even like more dense somehow than Blavatsky's writing too, which is, which is kind of hard to do, but man, you, you try to read this thing and it is, it is hard to, to fathom what's going on there. Yeah. I would say obscurantist is, is the way to describe that. Oh yeah, definitely. So yeah, but, but in there, she talks about these beings from the moon and Mars traveling down to earth and basket works. And they were, you know, these beings were helping humanity along. And so the the humans on Earth at the time were the Lemurians. And so these well, basically ancient aliens, I guess, were teaching the Lemurians how to be civilized um, and civilization. And so she, they, she describes these Lemurians as these like a huge, ugly gorilla looking like creatures with egg shaped heads and, and 
and everything else. And they were fighting, you know, dinosaurs and things like that. Or how does California end up having this central importance? It's of course on the West coast, uh, but the, you have this relationship to Mount Shasta and I guess uh, the Amark is really central in yeah. kind of updating this Lemurian mythology. Yeah, it's it's kind of fascinating. I'm not sure exactly like how that happened. I think it was a, a combination of a couple of different things. Um, first, you have Frederick Spencer Oliver's A Dweller on Two Planets coming out in the early 1900s. And I think a second edition was released in the 1920s that was proved to be pretty influential. And so The Dweller on Two Planets is another one of these kind of uh, it's a channeled work. Um, Oliver was a teenager at the time, and he was um, working around Mount Shasta when, or Northern California, I believe. Um, and he got a, he just started, you know, uh, this being started writing. Um, it basically took control of him and started like automatic writing for him. Um, and so over, you know, a period of time, they they began conversing and it became, he, he, he came to learn it was Phylos, the, the Tibetan. And so he was channeling this, you know, entity. And so for a number of years, um, um, Phylos was coming to him and he got, um, he made basically Frederick um, write a book for him. Um, and so he channeled a book um, called you know, A Dweller on Two Planets. And it goes into, it's a fascinating book because it's, um, like if you if you think about it, it's a really cool story because it's like you know, uh, Atlantean love triangle um, with um, you know spaceships and submarines and you know air airship submarines basically. Um, but it's like super boring as as hell because it's <laughs> um, it, it gets into this kind of esoteric Christianity on every other page. Um, but then um, the the main character that that Atlantean character that he follows dies and gets reborn um, in contemporary times, like uh, in the um, Civil War period. Um, and then he has his own life, and he goes to Mount Shasta, and, and this mystical um, he meets this mystical Chinese man who takes them inside of Mount Shasta and kind of takes them on this you know mystical tour to Venus um, and, and you know, basically learning, you know, Christianity along the way. Um, and so that's, that's really where the idea of there being this kind of weird Mount Shasta um, comes from. And it's not picking up until the 1920s when you get, um, you know, Amork and Harvey Spencer Lewis, the, the man who created or who founded Amork, um, he starts writing about these, kind of crazy things happening around Mount Shasta. So that's the beginning of like the whole Mount Shasta mythos is kind of pulled out of this, I guess you could say like channel material, but exactly. kind of a work of fiction at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. I've always kind of wondered why Mount Shasta just all of a sudden became associated with that. And I, I, I know that there are some, there's some native American legends about Shasta of it being some kind of like a mystical place. Mm-hmm. But then how it just gets all this, there's this big milieu around Shasta. It's, yeah. it's crazy. Yeah. And that's, that's the funny thing before, like I was, I was trying to research what, what people thought about Mount Shasta before like, um, Wisher servers, um, book came out, who is basically, um, 
Harvey Spencer Lewis um, before his his book came out in the 1930s. And you you get these you you read these like travel logs and travel stories about Mount Shasta and people just walking all around it and just having a good old time. But, you know, they they're not seeing weird lights. They're not right. encountering weird, you know, Lemurians or anything along those lines. They're just, you know, having a good time in the woods and then, the, and, you know, climbing up a mountain. And so, the Forest Service tells everyone that they surveyed the entire thing and they're still exactly yeah exactly and that's very early on too in the in the thing so like within the early 1930s when you know it really becomes a kind of a, a marvel of esotericism um you have the forest service coming out and saying hey there's nothing here we fly over it every day we we, we map it like it's there's nothing there man so now we've right. got channeling also of lemurians entering the picture and blavatsky kind of made the template with that, with the the ascended masters and Mahatmas, but they were writing letters. But this is now, you know, now we are channeling ascended masters. Now we are channeling Lemurians. Yeah, that's what really takes it into the you know kind of the new age realm too, because um, channeling um, for for a lot of channelers, Lemuria becomes part of their channeled entities backstory. Um, so for let's say jane roberts and the seth material um now like seth doesn't come from lemuria he comes from lumania which is you know just a couple of you know lenders away from from lemuria but it's it's the same idea and the same kind of concepts coming from them um um so i'm thinking jay-z knight uh, who was a big channeler in the 80s and, and early 90s um, who's still around too? Um, she channeled her entity that she channeled was Ramtha, and Ramtha was his backstory was as a enslaved Lemurian who was enslaved by Atlanteans, and so he kind of right, right. got like this Spartacus like revolt against his Atlantean overlords, and 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 did that. I love how there's this, especially when you get into the Cold War. Uh, all of a sudden, there's this there's this massive conflict that has taken place from Atlantis between Atlantis and Lemuria. So it's just like the United States and the Soviet union, right? <laughs> I mean, these two massive blocks <laughs> of land that are going, that are going to potentially destroy each other. And, and this is what happens. And the other thing I forgot where it was, but the massive amounts of links of time that these wars take place in are just ludicrous. Like, yeah, there's like oh it lasted for seventy thousand years and all this kind of stuff like no real like idea of just how actually long that is just that's just the statement oh it lasted for seventy thousand years this war went on this this struggle between atlantis and and lemuria and so it's an interesting it's just it's just another way of like of pulling in what was the struggle of the cold war was and say, hey, we we'll, we could destroy ourselves just like Atlantis and Lemuria did. Yep, yep. And so I think that was um what Maurice Doriol or um who came up with that that fighting between Lemurians and Atlanteans. Um, and he had the Atlanteans winning and imprisoning the Lemurians inside of Mount Shasta. And so, right. um, like every seven years, Atlanteans will come and check to make sure that the Lemurians were were staying in place there. So, 
<laughs> and he's a fascinating guy too. He's 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 basically responsible for like the modern reptilian mess too, and, and all of that kind of yeah. fun stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah he's got the pre David Ike. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. We should mention though to um, back up just a little bit because I think he's a little slightly earlier. Uh, James Churchward and yeah. this idea of the lost continent of Mew, uh, which he comes up with a whole entire there's a whole entire history. There's this, you know, like like it's pretty much Donnelly's Atlantis, but he's saying you know, this is all Mew that started this, and and so how does he come into the into play um, here with these all these beliefs? Yeah, so like he he seemed to want to create a more um, realistic, I guess, um, place. Um, kind of take it away from the mysticism and and make it more grounded in, I guess, reality or or maybe even more uh, reality of of ancient history. And so, um, yeah, he was a fascinating character. He was a colonel in the the British Army. Um, um, stationed in, I think he served in India, um, and there was there in India where he. Kind of had a like he basically cribbed Blavatsky's black backstory, and um, he was taught by you know secret ancient masters um, in northern India uh, about the secret language on these secret tablets and, and all that kind of stuff. And then he kind of goes about and has this you know travels around trying to you know basically doing. Um, like ancient history tourism almost, um, and that's where he stumbled upon the. Um, Les Plongeons, um, and I've always wanted to know how to pronounce that. So. Yeah, I have no idea, so I'm just trying, trying my best there. <laughs> um, but they're British too, so it's it can't be like too, I guess, French, Francophile. Yeah, maybe it's a little anglicized. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, Augustus and Alice. So there's this like British couple that just got the urge to go become mystical archaeologist in the Yucatan Peninsula. And so they actually were doing these like um, real excavations and finding real artifacts and, and things like that. But from those artifacts that they were finding, they created this kind of like out there idea of there being this um, kingdom of Mu. And that's spelled like the the cow, like what the cow says, M-O-O. Um, and so it's it's just huge backstory of princesses running away from you know the murderers of their husbands and fleeing um, across Atlantis from you know Mexico across Atlantis to Egypt, which was uh, Atlantean province, um, and so so that whole backstory. Um, and so he befriends them. He becomes then actually when Augustus dies, Alice, you know. Um, bequeaths him Augustus's papers and everything like that. And so he has that in his like kind of back pocket. And then along comes Willem, William Niven, who was this British mineral, like um, mineralist who was like um, just basically doing, looking for minerals, like precious minerals in Mexico. And he started stumbling across these tablets and these artifacts too. Um, and, and he started like coming up with his own ideas of what these artifacts were. Now those artifacts and tablets that he was coming across were most likely put there by the like, um, local people who were, you know, forging them and selling them to him. So it was a way for them to kind of like drum up some money. It seems like, um, but anyways, 
Niven was taking these seriously, and then Churchward took these seriously. And so um, it was through Niven's tablets that helped prove the Le Plongeon's idea of Mu. And so he kind of dropped the OO and turned it into a U. And that's where you get Churchward's Mu. And then so this word Mu comes into the vocabulary. Yeah, yeah. It actually so becomes he, interchangeable with Lemuria. Exactly, yeah. And that, that that's, uh, I guess, to give Churchward credit for, um, like, he never, and throughout, uh, I think, six books that he wrote on Mu, uh, and they're all like the Lost Continent of Mu, the Children of Mu, Sacred Symbols of Mu, Cosmic Forces yeah. of Mu. There's you know, a bunch of Mu, Mu books. Um, never once mentions Lemuria in them. So, um give him credit for that he, he stuck to his he stuck to his guns and his theme <laughs> to mention also um the shaver mysteries yeah, and yeah. which is published by ray palmer in amazing stories which is published as i remember lemuria yeah so what is this connection between the shaver mysteries that you know the darrows the evil robots and all that stuff which really a lot of that mythology goes into the ufo and flying saucer mythos and yeah. abduction mythos later on uh what is the connection there with lemuria well for like for um shaver and his stories and his um what was happening in his mind at the time um lemuria was earth so tens of thousands of years ago two races of basically extraterrestrials or um, giant beings came down and colonized earth and earth at the time was called Lemuria. And so that's where you get, I remember Lemuria. It's him remembering these giant creatures walking the earth and they were responsible for kind of creating these bioengineered robots. And that's where we get um, Darrow's from. And so, um, the sun became too poisonous for these beings. They kind of drilled underground and created, you know, the cave systems and, and stuff like that and lived underground. But even that became too poisonous. And so they, you know, went off earth and left all of these bioengineered robots here. Um, some of those robots, um, you know, evolved and became able to withstand the, you know, the sun and they became you and I, that's, that's what we are right now. Um, others are stayed underground and those are the Darrow's that kind of stayed underground and were these kind of mischievous little evil dwarf things, um, lizardy like, um, creatures that kind of responsible for everything from, you know, stealing your car keys, your, you know, your socks from your, the, the dryer to, you know, 9-11. So especially all right. Shaver's personal problems. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so you guys have been talking, you, you, um, you had an episode a while back with um, Adam Go Rightly about his book, um, James. And like, I see a lot of similarities between him and Richard right. Shaver. There's a lot of right. like targeted individual, mm -hmm. but for, you know, Shaver, it's, you know, these Darrow's chasing him around, causing him trouble. And for down, it, it, it's, 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 you know, other things causing. There seemed to be a lot of figures like that in the mid 20th century. I mean, Downer was one of them. Shaver definitely was one of them. I think um, Carl Allen or Carlos Allende, as you would call him, yeah. some called him, uh, who uh, came, basically came up with the Philadelphia experiment stuff really by himself. 
you know, a lot of these guys were all this type of just, they were all just, you know, they had been in mental institutions and these type of things. And, and these, these people like Ray Palmer yeah, would just hop on this stuff mm-hmm. and they would, um, in these science fiction magazines and they would print this stuff as like nonfiction. And so it just, it just stuck and yeah. it just creates this, this whole mythology. And it gets you repeated and repeated and repeated. And, right. And, and been, right. If it gets repeated enough, then we make it, take it for fact. And that's how we are where we are today, really. I mean, it's just the. Yeah. yeah and we're yeah. going to get into that. But going back to the Mount Shasta stuff, and I really want to touch on I Ballard, the IM movement. Um, I mean, they are straight out of theosophy. Um, and in Lemuria, obviously focuses pretty heavily in there but this whole um idea about saint germain and where saint germain like how saint germain is involved and how he's a lemurian i guess i i don't even know (laughs) yeah so um that's that's one of the remarkable things is like (sighs) guy ballard just like whole hog took frederick spencer oliver's um like book like the the second half of a dweller on two planets um and just throw it for his own backstory um and so the whole so guy ballard his 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 um kind of fame was he was walking around mount mount shasta he um came upon saint germain saint germain gave them this like milky drink he drank it and then he just went on like this you know magical mystery tour right uh, all over the place and basically taught him like um and saint germain is like just another ascendant master um in a line of ascendant masters um and so that that's all basically also in a dweller on two planets though the whole same concept of meeting this like mystical person them taking you on a, a kind of this um educational mind you know bending trip um and so and even like the name i am and how it's spelled is you can find that throughout a dweller on two planets as well because he's they spell it in all capital letters i capital a capital m um and so that's all throughout the dweller on two planets as well and so he, he and it's it became so bad that the um frederick spencer oliver's family sued the im activity movement for copyright infringement because they were stealing the, the backstory so much but the judge said since oliver had channeled is it a channeled ma- material he did not have um you know rights to that so i guess they should have got phylos to the follow the um, right right yeah but um so yeah that's that's really where the like the backstory of of saint germain comes from um well for for guy ballard i think and like the brains of that operation was his wife edna who was really the like the student of the occult and so she worked in um so yeah Okay, to get okay, let's get in the backstory of Guy yeah. Ballard because he's he's a he's just a kind of a creep. Um, so he was obsessed with two things, like gold mines and um, the occult. And so he was always coming up with these like gold mine schemes and trying to finagle people out of their money, like just basically schemes to get little old women out of their life savings. Um, and one of those schemes backfired. And it got him in trouble with the Chicago DA. 
which is where they're from. The, the biologists are from Chicago. And so he had to skip town. And so it was during that time where he was on the lam from the Chicago DA that he went to California. And it's during that period where he supposedly met St. Germain. Um, and in the book he wrote, um, he says he was on government business. And so I guess the government business was him running from the law. And away from the government. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Um, and so... But during that time, Edna was back in Chicago working at an occult bookstore, having like, you know, readings with people, um, just really getting into like the nitty gritty of the occult. Um, and so I think she formed, formulated a lot of the like kind of the, the ideas behind the like basically or the esoteric ideas behind the I am activity movement. But he was the charismatic leader that that they needed to make it happen. Yeah, he didn't seem that crazy. He seemed really creepy. Like if you look at pictures of him, he's like this, just really like he got crazy eyes. That's that's the best <laughs> way to explain him. Well, then William Dudley Pelly gets involved too, and I mean Pelly is a straight up fascist. I mean, yeah, the yeah. shirts and all that, and, mm -hmm. um, and so he gets in. Yeah, I was gonna say he gets in trouble with the law. Um, yeah. and the I am activity movement kind of changes their um changes their uh, language to pull in his supporters so they're like they're they're stealing his 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 supporters while he's in jail or yeah facing i guess yeah. treason charges and stuff like that yeah and i think that it was a vice versa thing too i think where they they were pulling um they were pulling from the im and they were it was kind of like, it was kind of a cross uh mm -hmm cross-pollinization between the two groups of silver shirts and the im movement but they were yeah. very closely linked and um you bring up a good point talking about saint germain about how really nationalist the im movement really was and in the figure of saint germain they saw saint germain as he basically and this is something i never heard before until i read your book that and their idea was that he basically negotiated American independence, that he was the one really fighting for American independence. And St. Germain was, was instrumental for this. And there's some things that started making sense there, this focus on St. Germain and out of the IMM movement comes Elizabeth Clare prophets movement. And they had a lot of emphasis on, on him, St. Germain. And then of course you mentioned the, um, I was glad that you mentioned General Flynn and his basically taking verbatim Elizabeth Declares Prophet's prayer, which is straight out of the I am movement. Yeah. And how um so how Saint Germain is like that figure that is very much like the symbol of America. It's like a nationalist saint, yeah. Yeah. Right. So this yeah, this French um nobleman. This 300 year old French nobleman is a, the American <laughs> saint. Right. And, and that's, that's the thing too, is the, um, the I am activity movement. It was, it's like, I think people would, um, it would not seem so out of place today. Um, especially in like QAnon worlds and stuff like that. I think there would be a lot of, um, crossover there. People seeing. No. So, and that's the thing is like, I've had some people say, well, Flynn does know what he's doing he doesn't know what he's talking about um he, he must have just pulled that from 
somewhere. And I've said, well, maybe he's just being a pragmatist. But when you wrote that in the book, that um, that is very possible that the real religion that he probably has is really some something that's based on theosophy and not real Christianity. Yeah, so of course, yeah. Elizabeth Care Prophet also said, well, you know, I'm a Christian too. So, you know, that the the distinction is you know, it, it's this this thing that's based in this new age, new age philosophy rather than like you know, like some like Judeo Christian ethics. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the funny thing about I am. Um like when they started to lose a little bit of steam and then not lose, getting as many converts as they wanted, um, they kind of just threw Jesus in there to, yeah, yeah. To, and then, and even said like, um, yeah, Jesus said, St. Germain's a good guy. He's a prophet too. So um, they were just kind of just making it up as they go along. So it was just like, <laughs> it's a funny, and then, then you would have these, they would be on stage. And so they would have, there'd be Edna and Guy, all dressed to the nines and then you know, like this perfect um i guess like white supremacist version of jesus and saint germain portraits mm-hmm. like just hanging behind them so it's it's kind of fascinating and yeah. terrifying too so through mount shasta and the interface with hollow earth theory that also happens we find lemuria going underground but then also we mentioned Palmer already and the flying saucer mythos and aliens coming to the picture too. So it's really just gobbling up everything. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think right after, so right after the Shaver mysteries and actually it's Shaver mysteries, like there's a direct tie between it going downhill and UFOs coming up because yep. I think the last issue of amazing stories that published uh shaver mystery was in 1947 and you know i think um the you know um kenneth arnold and stuff yeah yeah arnold the arnold signing that's what i was going for was was right then right right at the same time and that's when you know palmer went you know full tilt into the ufos too and so there's a direct correlation there with um with those um and then like yeah with the whole UFO things like um, it starts getting played into these new groups that are coming out, like the um, Atherius, like um, UFO based religion. Um, they part of their backstory is that, you know, Lemurians were like Lemurians were part of their backstories. And then you have uh, a group like the Unarius Academy of the Sciences. Um, yeah, yeah. Good old yeah. Ruth Norman. Yeah, Ruth Norman, a.k.a. Uriel, um, and them doing these kind of past life regression, channeling things, pulling back, going back as far and talking about the Lemurian Space Brothers coming down and, and things like that. But yeah, the, the Unarius was also pulling from pop culture and everything too, like admittedly too, like they, 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 saw, they saw Space Brothers and everything, so... Which, by the way, um, if you're interested, the 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 entire um, the entire movie of the arrival, the Unarian um, propaganda film, is on YouTube now. Oh, in nice! Its entirety. Oh, that's amazing. And it it is it is amazing. Yeah, I bet so. <laughs> they were they were the only they were the like I was getting um, the rights for pictures to use in the book. 
Um, and I reached out to them to like, you know, there was a, like a, the LA times had published, there was a, they did an art exhibit at, at some LA based thing. And the LA times had these, these pictures of the, the art. And there was just one that showed, um, Uriel, Ruth Norman, and like all of the Ascendant Masters. So you have St. Germain there and you have, you know, everybody else. And so there's just like this really lovely painting right there. And I was just, I reached out to the Hunarius to, to see if I could get like a, a picture of that or, or something like that. And it was just this like semantic back and forth about who the Lemurians were and 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 everything else and it was just like okay i will i would just go buy something off of getty then i think that's it was a little bit too much to, to, to deal with huh yeah exactly i was like i don't think you're you'll give me give me what i want so let's just that well, was just go i mean it seems like all this stuff really just like bifurcates and it's like you start with theosophy and you move down into the 20th century and in the ufo era and all of a sudden they're just replacing um they're just replacing UFOs with the Atlanteans or saying that that's or the Lemurians and stuff. And I notice another trend in the book is that Lemuria is this fantastical place. So all these things come from, from Lemuria, the, the, and then, but then all of a sudden by the 1950s, well, we know Lemuria probably didn't actually exist. So now it's Venus, it's Mars. Um, and when you get to the contactee movement and, um, Adamski has connections with, I think, with the IM movement as well, and with Mount Shasta, more Mount Palomar, I would say, but Mount Shasta. Well, he was um, like he was well. in that whole like alternative California right. like religious scene, so right. And so, yeah, it's it's very interesting that how these ideas um, just continue, and some of these theosophical ideas even filter down to a group like the Unarians, like yep. they're basically saying the same thing. That the see that the theosophists were saying a hundred years before them. Mm -hmm. I, I uh, like doing the research. I've always I've I found it interesting. I found myself looking at the motivations of people a lot more than I thought I would, and 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 then looking at it that way, it becomes clear that over time, Lemuria just becomes a tool for people to get their story across or get their ideas across or, or whatever. And so um, it, that, that kind of like realization came to me um, as I was researching all of this. Like a common reference point, a popular mystery that everyone has already encountered. And you're like, Hey, well, let me tell you about the, <laughs> my version of the truth about Lemuria. Exactly. And there's no, there's no, nothing that can refute them too. So that, I think that's what makes it a, such a convenient tool is like, you can say that, but then it's like, prove me wrong. Yeah. Uh, before we started recording, we were chatting a little bit about when you encounter it nowadays in new age stuff, mostly through the internet, it's really divorced from its history and all these, especially any kind of like primary source and things like that. And it's, it's now just like a part of the, the folklore of all kinds of different new age practitioners and believers. So now it's just like everywhere. Yeah. It's like a, um, it's like a seasoning that people have to like sprinkle on their, their beliefs just to, to give it that, that authentic flavor, I think. Um, and so that's, that's what I ran across with Amy Carlson and her love has one 
cult like influencer cult thing that she she ran um because like her she said her backstory was that she was a former lumorian queen queen so she had no idea what lumoria was or anything like that no like you know i like ideas about it she just knew that she needed to check that that box and that's that's what lumoria i think that's really what lumoria has kind of like become now is just a a kind of a, a mystical box to check for people yeah and, and you you mentioned in the book you talk about going to the was it the conscious life expo or the metaphysical expo or yeah yeah like i that? just went to a local one here yeah i mean did you see anything there that you know supported some of the things that you wrote about in the book and like these these ideas and these trends well no just because i was disappointed because nothing was labeled lemurian there so i think that was just right right yeah i was just i was because i was looking there specifically for a lemurian crystal and so that's one of the most i guess prevalent um where you can find you know lemuria mentioned these days is as a lemurian crystal and so um that, i was like going there specifically to find one to buy one but they didn't have one unfortunately don't ask for any Lemurian crystal at a fish concert or something like that. <laughs> you get something else. Mm -hmm. So to kind of sum everything up, why do you think that these these memes about Lemuria, uh, these ideas, why do you think they persist? What is their like their real staying power? Um, I think it's it turned. I was always um, I was taken aback by doing the research about how like this alternative narrative was created and how it can be created. And you, throughout the book, you see it just shifting and turning and being like Play-Doh almost and being able to mold it and turn it into whatever you want. And so I think that's the, the true staying power of Lemuria is like it <clears throat> it doesn't have a text like Plato's text on on Atlantis like um, Timaeus or Critias. Um, there's 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 no foundational like work out there to to you know inform anybody what Lemuria is. Lemuria can be whatever you want it to be, and so and and because of that, it has been made into whatever anybody wants it to be. Yeah, total blank canvas. Exactly. Yeah, it's a whole blank continent, man. Crazy. You put dinosaurs there and all kinds of things. Yeah. Dinosaurs riding UFOs going into the inner right. earth <laughs> to meet right. up with the Ascended Masters. Exactly. All the Ascended Saint Masters Germain, are there. St. Germain's down there just, you know, founding America and all, all kinds of interesting stuff <laughs> is happening. We covered it pretty extensively. I just wanted to say that uh, me and Adam really thoroughly enjoyed this this book, and we think that our listeners have definitely encountered these themes and may be curious about them. Also, you've okay. got a, a talk coming up with yeah, we should talk about Philosophical that. Research Society. Uh, you can plug that for everybody. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, they have kindly invited me to give a talk about Lemuria. I think I'm going to focus a lot on the relationship between Heichel and Blavatsky. So, if you want like a nerd out on you know 19th century evolutionary theories and stuff like that then you know give it a shot i think it is october 21st um you can go to the the psr.org website and find more information on how to get tickets and all that kind of fun stuff awesome okay yeah and justin um where can people find the book and when it comes out and also um where can they find you 
So yeah, the book is available for pre-order anywhere you buy books, Amazon, nice. um, bookshop.org. I think Barnes and Noble, all those kind of places. Um, and you can find my work. I I'm on Instagram. Mostly. I think um, Justin loves history. Um, I have a newsletter, our belated past, um, bunch of fun historical stuff. I like to write about there. Um, yeah, I'm writing it. Next one is on uh, a hoax that Ben Franklin couldn't quit. So I think that's fun. Cool. Um, and okay. yeah, that's that's it. I just want to thank you guys. Thank you guys for everything for Conspiracy Normal. I've been a oh, loyal listener you. for you know probably a decade now, and so oh, thank awesome, you guys dude. for nice. all the all the hard work you guys put into this. So I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, well, thank yeah, thank you for coming on. That's awesome, man. Uh, mm-hmm. Especially when you have now written a book. So that's, <laughs> no, right? That's that's incredible. Never um, know who's I'm listening. I'm curious what what are some of the uh, mysteries that you've written about on your blog? Well, um, I have written about the. I'll, I'll post this one later, but it was I was actually published in Fate, but it was 19th century ghost hunting, which was fun. Um, basically, talking about all of the instances of people seeing ghosts in the 1800s and then just shooting at the ghost <laughs> and all the, the funny stuff that happens there. Um, talk about a ghost dog sighting in Richmond in 1876. Um, what else? What, what else am I going to get into? Um, you know, what I really want to look into talk about a feral house um, um, connection is the, the octopus. Um, the whole Danny uh, Casalaro yeah. um, death um, just because he died not too far away from where I lived. I lived in Martinsburg. Right. He, he died in Martinsburg. And so I would love to, and there's one, there's one little, little nugget from that book that I would love to kind of research more into. Cool. Yeah. That's an, that's an that. interesting, uh, yeah. that, that's definitely an interesting case. We had uh, Ken Thomas on to talk about that a long time ago. Yeah, yeah. Whatever. Like, I think there was a reprint of his book that that happened. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and I emailed him after. There's like, so Casalaro was in Martinsburg to um, interview staff of Robert C. Byrd, who was a kind of famous senator from West Virginia. And I like, I want to know why. Like, why, why, why would he want to interview them? So, okay, yeah, right. yeah, interesting stuff, yeah. Well, I appreciate your loyal listenership for the last 10 years. That's awesome, man. Sometimes I can't believe I've been doing this thing for 11 years. It's crazy. Yeah, right. Um, I want to thank you for coming on, for being a part of this. So stay on the line for us. But uh, we're going to we're gonna close the show out. Uh, just a couple of announcement, guys. Um, this should be out before it comes out. If you guys were going to do a promo on this, hopefully tomorrow as we're recording this. But um Marco Azevedo going to be giving a strange realities online presentation mm-hmm. on part two of the spark and the vessel that's coming up on Wednesday at 8 PM, uh, the 27th of September. So you guys look forward to that. That will probably be one of the last ones that we will do before the conference. We are thinking about in October doing a meetup, uh, with no presentations for everybody. It's kind of like a pre um strange realities conference party and which brings me of course to the strange realities conference you guys if you have not gotten your tickets 
to either online or in person, please do so as soon as possible. Uh, there is a streaming Facebook group up. That's exactly how we did it the last few years. We're going to do it the same way. But to get into that, uh, there's a $30, $30 charge for online only. And if anybody has any questions about that, um, the whole entire conference is online. I've seen a couple of people ask me, about whether or not the whole thing is online and it is all of it is online it's just on the t november 3rd and 4th it is at sir as well so that's a live live event but everything the whole conference is streamed online so just to clear that up and we're really looking forward to it guys and this may possibly be the last um the last one that we do in this kind of format. So you guys want to come out and, and check this out, but uh, November 3rd through the 5th, November 3rd, 4th in Nashville and November 5th online, but the whole thing streaming online, anything that to add about that. I just love to see everybody. If you can't make it in person, uh, love to see you online in the chat. We usually get to interact with everyone while we're running the show. Um, and uh, just wanted to say, check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash conspiranormal, where you can sign up for the Mystic Crew to be able to view these monthly presentations, including this one coming up from Marcos, The Spark in the Vessel, Part 2, Part 1. Everyone thoroughly enjoyed and uh, had some excellent um, artistic and design work by Marco. That's his profession uh, on his views of the UFO uh, technological imaginal, I believe is what he, what he called it, but that'll be really great. Check that out at cons at patreon.com slash conspiranormal. I think that is it. Just remember strangerrealitiesconference.com. I want to thank uh, Justin for being here with us tonight. And uh, starting next week, we are going to be streaming these live as well. We are going to be doing our strange realities conference promos. So you guys uh, check those out on YouTube. You all are going to be absolutely sick of it, I'm sure, but that's what you're well, going to hear until November. Until you, until you pull the you pull the pull the trigger and buy tickets. All right, strangerrealitiesconference.com, and we'll talk to you later on Conspiranormal. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.